with a purpose. It's not enough just to parent. There needs to be a purpose in our parenting. When you think about parenting and you think about having a purpose, what comes to your mind for the purpose? What, what would you like to see accomplished in your parenting? Anybody? Christ-like children. Okay, that's a good purpose. Anybody else? Solid workers for Jesus. It's good. Would you like to see him in the kingdom of heaven? Amen. Amen. Those are all good purposes. Now, how many of you have ever set out with a purpose to get educated? Raise your hands. Is it good to be educated? Like it's good to say we'd like to have our children in the kingdom of heaven, right? So did you have to do anything after you said it'd be good to get an education? Just sit around and get educated, right? Just kind of open up your head and let it pour in. Or did it cost you something? Did it cost you some time? Some effort? Some commitment? Did you have to keep the purpose in front of you? Did you ever feel like maybe you want to give up? <laughs> or maybe you had a bad day? Ever feel that way as a parent? What do you think? Oh, I've felt that way before. Parenting with a purpose. If we want to, to meet the purposes that God has put in our hearts for our young people, then it won't be something that we'll just say the day our child is born and never think about it again. We will have to be thinking, planning, preparing if we're going to see that purpose fulfilled. In other words, we have to take action. And I remember when our children were first born, our first two, these were our desires, these were our goals, these were our purposes, but life swallowed us up. The busyness of life, our other interests, my career, those types of things kept us from keeping the purpose very clear in our minds. And I'm thankful that God uses many ways to reach our hearts. Amen. And... Uh, he touched our hearts and helped us to realize that the direction that we were heading, while we said we wanted our children in the kingdom of God, while we wanted to raise them in, in the truths of the scriptures, the reality was that we were good parents, but we were not consciously aware day by day, moment by moment of that purpose. And so when the Lord kind of sent that bolt of lightning to our understanding, we began to make serious changes to really make our young people a priority. And we want to share with you this morning uh, from the scriptures and also from the application of those scriptures, what it means practically to parent with a purpose. That means it's clear in our mind day by day. It's clear in our prayer time. It's clear in our process through the day what God wants us to do to prepare our children for his kingdom and if we're preparing them for his kingdom then they're also being prepared to be his servants here in this world on their journey to the heavenly land if you have your Bibles open up to Deuteronomy 
the sixth chapter, which is a very common parenting chapter. We're going to look there at verses 5 and onward. We're going to look at the purpose that God has given us in parenting. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. This is the purpose that we have as parents if we want to see our children in the kingdom of heaven. That means it applies to us, right? That's right. Not only in the kingdom of heaven, but to see them be successful and useful here in this life. Real success. And then it says in verse 6, this is really the parents' part of this, if we're going to have this happen. And it shall be in thy heart. If I want my young people to love the Lord their God with all their soul, with all their heart, with all their might, then it needs to start where? In my heart. Okay? It needs to be in my heart. This is the first place to begin not to say, do what I tell you to do, not as I do. You know, that kind of parenting never works. Okay? If we want to tell our children that it's not right for them to be bickering and arguing with each other, then what needs to be the example of mother and father? It needs to be in our heart, right? So what we want to do now as we go through the next few verses is there's two key principles that we as parents need to be picking out here that help us to keep the focus of parenting heart to heart, parenting with a purpose. So listen carefully as we read these next two verses and see if you can pick out these two key important, we'll call them foundational principles to successful parenting. Verse 7, thou shalt... Teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So did you pick it out? There's two important factors here that we as parents must do in order to help our young people gain the experience of loving the Lord Jesus with their entire heart, might, and soul. What are we going to do? We're going to teach them, right? What are we going to teach them? How to love God, right? And how, So teaching them. It says we're going to teach them diligently. That means it's going to take effort. And we're going to talk of them. In other words, it's talking about communication. It's impossible to... Parent with a purpose. It's impossible to instill in our young people how to love God with their whole heart if we don't communicate with them. Amen. Communication is vitally important in parenting. Now, besides communication, when is this going to happen? All the time. From the time they get up until the time they go to bed. Isn't that what it's saying here? And That's really talking about companionship, isn't it? If we're going to be with our young people from the morning till the evening, that's companionship. And communication and companionship is really the message that God is giving us through these verses, that he wants us as parents, if we're going to teach them how to love God with their whole heart, we need to spend time in communication with them and in companionship with them. 
And this is one of the interesting things that the devil has done to destroy this aspect of parenting. Very subtly, and not so subtly, okay? What he has done is he has gotten parents so overcommitted, so over-indebted, so pushed and pressed, that the only thing that many parents can do is to get someone else to spend time with their children as their companion. We know families that their children spend way more time in companionship with a daycare center, with a babysitter, than they ever nearly spend with their parents. So what happens to the companionship? Who is the companion of, of this child ends up being someone who is getting a paycheck, wants to do what's right, but cannot possibly give to the children what mother and father need to give them in companionship. So, now we've got the verse here that says, When thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. What's happening now? Most of those hours, when this companionship is supposed to be taking place, when this teaching is supposed to be taking place, it's falling in the lap of someone else who probably doesn't even understand the extent of these verses. So the devil has stolen a march on us as parents to break down the communication, break down the companionship, which thereby breaks down the final product that we're trying to instill in our young people, parenting with a purpose. Let's look at verse 8. It says, Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. That's simply saying to us that when we do this, it gives our children purpose and direction in life. It gets them on the road that they need to be. It helps them to find that relationship with Jesus Christ that will direct and guide them through life. When it's talking about the frontlets and the hand here, it's interesting that when we see the mark of the beast happening, where does the mark, mark of the beast happen? Two, two areas. Forehead and hand. Okay. Now there'll be some people that'll get it in their forehead. That means that there'll be some people that just think it's wonderful and think that that's the way it's supposed to be and they'll believe it right here. They'll reason through it and they'll say, this is what I want to do. There'll be other people who will say, you mean I can't buy or sell if I don't do this? I mean, I can't feed my family? You mean I'm going to maybe go to prison if I... Here! Get me on my hand! Now, is that going to be a visible mark? No. No. What it means is, here, I've been a slave already. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. That's the hand, the works. It's not really in the head. So we as parents, we have this blessed privilege, if we will give the companionship, if we will give the communication, we have this privilege of working in the heart, the mind, the intellect of our young people, and getting them to work with their hands, their whole experience is in it. What a blessed privilege and opportunity that we have to have it in the frontlets between their eyes and on their hand as well. Verse 9 says, And then thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. So, that means that we should all go home and get a big banner. You know, you can get big banners nowadays. I saw one coming in about the hundred years, you know. It's a big banner, isn't it? So we could get a big banner 
and we could put it out on the front gate of our house or up on the front porch and we could say, we are Christians. In case any of you didn't know, in case you couldn't tell by our lifestyle, we are Christians. Is that what God's saying here? Write it on the doorposts. What's God saying there? That we're never to be ashamed of him. And if we live with him as he designs us to live with him, that whoever comes into our home will know that he abides there in our hearts and in our home. That even people passing by can tell by the way they see our property, by the way they see our yards, by the interaction they hear of our children playing in the yard, that these are Christians who live here. Amen. It'll be evident. It's visible. When Christ is in the life, it's visible. If he's not, we have to try to manufacture some level of Christian um, principle on the outward. When Christ is in the heart, it is a spontaneous reaction. It flows from us, and we don't have to try to announce that we're Christians. We only have to let Christ live in us, and him living in us becomes the example to others around so I want to talk about companionship now. And you're going to find out very quickly that what it means to have companionship with our young people means a commitment like we're making to other things in life. Okay? None of us think anything of making a commitment to employment. Why? Well, you've got to make a living, right? If you own your own business, do you have to work it? Do you have to get it started? Yes, there's a commitment that's involved there. We could talk about every aspect of life, and we think, yeah, that's a part of life. Well, a part of parenting is companionship. And it takes a commitment. It takes a conscious commitment. We need companionship in the worship experience with our families. Morning by morning, evening by evening, we need to open and close the day with our families having worship companionship at the beginning and the end of the day. We need companionship playing with them. You know, I know a lot of people that are dedicated to their children, but they just can't see playing with them as being a part of their companionship. Our young people need for us to play with them. They need to learn how to work. Working with our children, that's a part of the companionship that God wants to give us, working with our children. And then associating with them in the normal associations of life. And then the companionship as they grow in their personal life and their personal, personal ambitions. Now, if we're going to be a part of every part of that life, does that take time? Does that take a commitment? Is it worth it? Amen. It is worth it. It will always be worth it. Now, this doesn't mean that we end up being with them constantly. Okay? It doesn't work that way. But it means we are a part of every part of their lives. That they can count on us being there in every aspect of their life. So we want to take these areas of companionship and we want to look at what that means practically in the early years, in the mid-years, in the late years of our young people's lives. When we had our children when they were very little, three children only got two, two legs to set them on for family worship. So we rotated. <laughs> Gave everybody a chance to sit there and see the pictures in the Bible storybook when they were little. 
and we took the Bible stories and we made them come alive. You know, the Bible stories are great, but they're not enough unless they come into a practical application in life. So when we talked about Abraham, you know, Abraham's a long ways away in our past history, isn't he? And Abraham had to put his son on an altar, and Abraham had to do lots of things by faith. Well, how do you translate that to four or five-year-olds? How do you do that? Well, by God's grace, we tried to bring it practically. When Abraham had to exercise faith, how do you bring that down? Well, we would say to Allison, you know, you didn't feel like sweeping the floor yesterday, did you? Kind of got fussy about that. Your children ever get fussy about doing things that they need to do? <laughs> They're just like we are. <laughs> yeah. Try to take it down to something where our children have to exercise faith. It takes faith, children, to get off your bicycle or get off your tricycle or come away from playing to do what mommy or daddy is asking you to do. That takes the same faith that Abraham had. Did you know that? The very same faith that Abraham had. But it's the faith that a little child has to exercise to come in and help mommy fold the clothes when you'd rather be out riding your bicycle. That's making it practical for our children. And we can make it practical at any age if we're willing to take the time. Companionship with them and play. When they were little and they couldn't even ride a bicycle, just putting that bicycle, the seat, extra seat on the back of the bicycle and taking them with us. Or as they got a little older and they could sit in the wagon, tying the wagon on to the back of the bicycle and father would go down the road and the children would be in the wagon. It was a great time together. Remember that? They always like the wagon. And so little things that we can do, many parents lose the opportunity to be companions with their young people in the early years because they send them off to play instead of spending time to play with them. That doesn't mean we play all day long, but every day we interact with them in play. It can be sitting in a cardboard dollhouse. You know, we did a lot of camps boxes from what the fruit came in at the end of the day they'd stack up all these empty boxes and make cardboard houses and we would go into those houses with them and and play with them in there they had their little dishes and their dolls and all that stuff it was enjoyable be their companionship and play and working if you've looked at the photo album you'll see a picture in there of Josiah helping peeling pears when he was very little. In fact, Elaine thought he was too little to be having a sharp knife. But he was sitting in my lap. He wanted to help. You know, one of the things that children desire when they're little is to help. Anyway, I want to help. I want to help. They want to help bake the bread, right? Yes, look at that sweet little girl. She's she's right there with me. They want to help. I tell you, if we will let them help when they are young, they will learn how to work and they will love to work when they are old. You know, my son got hired on by, by a doctor in our, <clears throat> in our valley. And this was when he was in his teenage years. And that doctor was not used to working as hard as my son had learned to work. It's very interesting. 
Josiah came home from helping him, and they were actually digging a root cellar in his log home, if you can imagine, digging a root cellar under an existing log home, carrying all the dirt out of a crawl space hole in the floor, bucket after bucket. And the, the gentleman said to Josiah, we need to take a break. And Josiah looked at him and he said, take a break? He didn't even know what taking a break was. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean we worked him like a slave at our house, okay? It means that one of the things that my father instilled in me is how to work hard. It never occurred to Josiah to take a break because he didn't feel like he needed a break. And so they kept working and finally the doctor said, we're going to take a break. The doctor needed to take a break. <laughs> If we will work with our children when they're young, they will develop a work ethic when they are older that will be a tremendous blessing for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. So, when your child wants to help you make the bread, I remember the first time I encouraged my wife with the girls, Josiah's a few years behind the girls, even though he's a few inches taller than they are. When they wanted to make bread with mother, do you know what mother's first reaction was? It's too messy. <laughs> I can get it done quicker myself. I'll teach them later. I said, honey, later will never come. Less busy will never come. Now is the time. Was that a good payoff? Yeah. <laughs> Was it messier? A little bit. Not like I thought. You know, when, when children want to help, it doesn't. part of that helping is teaching them how to do it. Not just letting them get in, you know, with their childish enthusiasm and, and make a mess. Part of it is that teaching them how to do it the best they can for their age. And then if the little mess happens, that's expected because that's their best. And they can help learn to clean it up. That's right. It's all part of it. Companionship in their association in the early years. Guard your associates with your children carefully. You be their associate. And if you have them and allow them to play with other children, you play with them in that association. Amen. If we do not, we teach our children to always want to be with someone else to have fun. They never learn that being with mother and father is fun. The other thing they learn is whatever that child knows that they're going to instill in your child's thoughts. And many children have come through life scarred from what they learned in less than five minutes in an association. That's right. Just because people believe the way we believe and go to the same church and have the same principles and even have family worship and do all these things doesn't mean that, they, that their children are safe associates. Not because they're bad children, but because children left unto themselves, we're told an inspiration, is an opportunity for the devil to find access to those children's thoughts. That's right. And things that children learn from other children are devastating, destroying, and sometimes irrecoverable. So we encourage you to be an associate with your children in play. We have been in the sandbox with our children and other children. We have been playing house. We have pushed cars around on the floor, mother and father and children. We have done many things with them to be their associates Amen. in playtime. We bought our children each of them, a survival book. We love to go camping, backpacking together. So we thought a good gift would be 
little survival guide. So we bought each of our children one of those little survival guides. And another family in the valley that our families have kind of grown up together, they also bought their young people these little survival guides for a gift. And then we got together one time for one of our family get-togethers, and this is another aspect of this. Rather than teaching your children by example that they can just run with the other children at church and they can just play when the families get together, they go play and mother and father talk, we began to instill in our children that we would do things together as families that would include them. They could be a part of the adult conversations and we would be a part of their fun and interactions outside to do things together. Our children grew up this way. And so our two families were together one day and our young people started getting this brainstorm about a survival outing. Why have a survival guide if you never know how to use it, right? We've tried to help our children learn the practical side of life. So they started talking to us and they talked us into a three-day survival outing. Now, they were all in their teens at this time. Yes. Now, surviving in Montana is not as good as surviving in Hawaii, okay? You can survive in Hawaii any time of the year. Surviving in Montana, even in July, is not a very good time to survive. All we had available up there that we could find in our survival guide was moss. It's edible. Did you know that? Not very good, but it's edible. Moss and wild onions. How's that sound for a menu? Wild onion moss soup. One of the other things we did in preparation for this outing is that the purpose of it was to show that, you know, people never plan to be lost, do they? And yet many people die, or people die every year on hikes. They get lost. They get hurt. They get separated. And, you know, sometimes you see, you hear miraculous stories how they survived through divine intervention. But not everyone survives. And so because of where we lived and because we hike a lot, nobody plans for the unexpected. And we felt the need to prepare and plan so we could have an experience. That's why we bought the guides, and that's why I went on this thing. And so when you're on a day hike, you take, well, we take a fanny pack with a couple of water bottles. You don't have a tent. You don't have sleeping bags. You don't have, you know, a lot of food with you. You just have, you know, a few granola bars or something like that. You're just going to go on a hike. So that's what we did. We, we went for three days with a fanny pack, just like we were going to be gone for a three-hour hike in the afternoon. So I tell them about your fanny pack, dear? You can. <laughs> See, one of the rules is only a fanny pack. So my wife went out and bought the biggest fanny pack you could imagine. It looked like half a backpack. <laughs> but it was within the rules because it was called a fanny pack, and you wear it like a fanny pack. So anyway, we went up there. Does anybody know what the first thing is that you should do when you find out you need to survive? What's the most important thing to survival? What's that? Not water. Well, water is important, but the very first thing in a survival situation is shelter. More people die of hypothermia than they do of dying of thirst. Okay? Shelter. So we got up there, and we started building the shelter according to the book. Now, we didn't have chainsaws. We didn't have, all we had was our day packs, right? So we got these little saws that open up, and you're sawing limbs off and going along. 
and were building shelters out of limbs being stacked up. We were following the book. Problem is, a big mountain storm came in halfway through that process, and we were not ready to survive. We got soaked. Cold. July in the mountains is not like July in Loma Linda. Please believe me. (laughs) There was still snow on the ground up in the mountains where we were trying to survive. And so there we were, caught in the rain. Fortunately, we had sense enough to get some wood under the cleft of a rock. That was one of the other things to survive, to have heat along with your shelter. So it rained, it poured, but we had some wood that we could get a fire started. A little bit. A little bit, yeah, to get a fire started. Once you get a fire started, you're in pretty good shape, as long as you don't build it under a bough of a tree and a big hunk of snow falls on it or something. But we got the fire started, and now we're going to try to survive drying out and making a meal. Now, what's our meal going to consist of? Remember? Moss and onions. Oh, boy. <laughs> what a meal. <laughs> so we were heating up our soup. Some of the young people were trying some of the moss just to see how edible it would be. It doesn't chew. It's just good fiber. You, you, you cannot chew those things up. <laughs> and so anyway, the, the soup is cooking, and, and the other mother that was with us, Donna, poor thing, her, her feet were just soaked. So we got some sticks, and, and she was trying to dry her socks out over the fire, trying to get her feet warm, and one of her socks, lo and behold, <laughs> fell in the soup. So now it was moss onion sock soup. But our little buddy that was with us, their child, he's a precious little boy. He's not a little boy anymore, but at the time, precious little guy. He's got Down syndrome. And you know, we have found that these little Down syndrome children, somehow God has... They might be missing an important gene, but they have a lot of love, don't they? Amen. And that little boy is such a precious thing. And he knew about onion soup because his sister, Allison, same name as our Allison, Allison Marie and Allison Heather, well, his sister, Allison, made great onion soup. And when he found out we were going to have onion soup, he got so excited. (laughs) It was hard to explain to him that this wasn't going to be the kind of onion soup that he was used to having at home. So now we've got onion sock soup, and it's, he just can't wait to have soup. And I'll never forget when he took his first bite of onion sock soup. It wasn't like the soup that Allison make, made at home. He said, I don't want to survive anymore. I said, I don't either. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Ahead, it, it was really late at night by this time. I mean, this, you know, the sun had set. We were right up against, we were in the mountains, right against the, the cleft of the mountain. And it was dark, it was cold, it was damp, we were wet. You know, the temperature was dropping drastically. In the summer, in July, it can go below freezing in the mountains. And so here we are, five teenagers, Seth, he was probably about eight at that time, and four parents. What are we going to do? We haven't even been there four or five hours, and we failed in our shelter. We failed in our food, and we are not warm. We're wet and cold. And by this time, we're out of the dry wood. We're using wet wood, which doesn't burn very good, and we just had a lot of smoke going on. We could tell more bad weather was going to come in, and so we had what we call a family council. What decision are we going to make? 
And I tell you, there were five young people who did not want to give up. There was one young child who was ready to go home and eat, and four parents who were ready to go home and get warm. So And, and eat. And eat. <laughs> and sleep in a nice, comfortable bed. So we talked about it. We talked about the reality of what, we, what, what could happen to us. We could get sick. Someone could be, you know, seriously ill from exposure. And so when it all boiled down, we discovered that some of the greatest hesitation that they had is if we went back home, next day mom and dad would go back to work or dad would go back to work and life would go on and home as normal. And they were counting on three days. So we agreed that if we would go home, we'd hike out in the dark, we would go home, we'd all go to our house. It was the first house we'd come to. We'd all stay there. And the next day, the next two days were dedicated to do whatever those young people wanted to do. Amen. And with that, they were ready to go home. We learned some valuable lessons in that survival outing. I mean, first of all, we didn't survive. It was nice that we didn't have to survive. You know, we probably would have survived if we had to for three days, but it was nice that we didn't have to survive. And you know, the lesson in it is this. We are not as prepared as we think we are spiritually. Amen. Are we really ready to survive what's coming on this earth? Not even so much the terrible things that are going to come on this earth. A time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. But are we ready to survive the sealing process. Are we ready to be sealed? Do you know one of the great opportunities that God is going to give to his people in the last days is to be sealed, to receive the power of the latter rain, and to go out and give the last message of mercy, its final call, like Noah standing there on the gangplank of the ark. What a privilege! But are we ready? You know, if we would have asked the question, were we ready to get the seal of survival, we would have said we we didn't do very well. We weren't ready to survive. Are we ready to receive the seal of God? There were so many lessons in that for us. But you know what was most important to us is the companionship. And that's what we're trying to emphasize. These are memories. Memories that, that are there in our minds of us taking time as parents When we don't think we have time, we need to take time. We'll never regret it. Take time. When these young people are this age, we need to take time for them because life will never get less busy. It's going to just increase in its busyness. Do you understand? that the way it is here in Loma Linda? I know it is. Companionship. I remember not too long ago, it was a couple years ago, Emily, our middle daughter, she loves languages. She loves to learn languages, and she's very fluent in Spanish. She's self-taught, and she loves to soak in any opportunity she has to hear Spanish nonstop and to be able to communicate in Spanish. Now, where we live in Montana, there's not a lot of Spanish-speaking people. But every year in Washington State, eight hours from our home, is a Spanish camp church Spanish camp that runs with the English Spanish camp for the Upper Columbia Conference. And she likes to go there. Companionship. You know, take the time. Go with her for the weekend. 
Have that eight hours with her in the car, eight hours back. Go to the meetings with her, sit through the meetings. I don't understand hardly a word they say, but be there with her. Enjoy that time with her. You know that really reaches the heart. Isn't that what God wants to do with us wherever we are? He wants our companionship. He wants to be with us. He loves us. He wants to be a part of our lives, whether we're at home or we're traveling or we're in school or we're working or whatever it is. God wants to be a part of our lives. And our young people need to see demonstrated practically that we care for them. We want to be a part of their lives. We want to enjoy the things that are important to them, even though they may hold no significance to us. Well, companionship naturally leads to the opportunity for communication. Doesn't it? I mean, if you don't have any companionship, you don't have any communication. But if you'll take time to have companionship, you will have time. You will have opportunities to communicate because companionship leaves a message with our young people. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Amen. And that's what we have in our hearts for our young people. You know, young people, as they get in the late teens and early 20s, they need our companionship just like they do in the twos and threes. They just need it in a different way. They need us to be there in these transitions of life that they're going through to be successful. And so communication is one of the byproducts of good companionship. I remember when Allison was first born, it was exciting to have a new baby, our first baby, and my mother came back to be with me and be with us during that time. She was there, you know, when we when Allison was born and she was there when we came home from the hospital with Allison. And I learned so much from my mother. Now, I have motherly instincts in me and I've always been very close to my mother, but I don't remember when what I was like or what she was like when I was an infant because infants don't have those memories, okay? And I noticed that, you know, she she let me rest cuz I labored all night and it was a very challenging labor. And so I was very exhausted and and she would take Allison and I could hear her out in the other room talking to her while she's changing her diaper and talking to her while she's giving her a bath and talking to her while she's holding her. And I'm thinking, she doesn't understand. And this child, you know, if she's even awake, it's just right over the top of her head. But as I observed my mother for that week, I learned a very important lesson. Start at birth to communicate with your child. With the, it was interesting to see in just, just a short period of time Allison's attachment to Grandma because she communicated with her. And I began at that point to talk to my children, even though they didn't understand me, even though I was just telling them what it's like to change a dirty diaper, whatever, you can say anything to them. They just need to hear your voice. They need to hear expressed in gentle tones and love. And that communication, that was an encouragement to me. I'm so thankful my mother was there. If she hadn't been there, I would have missed it. Because that's not something you learn in school. You know, the most important things in life, you're never taught in school. We either learn it from our home, hopefully we learn the right, or we we flounder in life and try to learn it from a book. So, God wants us to understand the importance of communication. If you haven't done that, wherever you are with your young people, start now to communicate in every area of the life. 
We need to be able to communicate with them about the things that are fun, the things that are sad, the good, the bad, the easy things, the hard things. We need to communicate about the, everything in life that is appropriate to their age. I underscore that. I hear parents talking about things with their children or talking about what the teacher, they gave the teacher permission to talk about with their children at eight and nine years old. I said, that's not appropriate. God never intended for those kinds of conversations to happen. So communicate about everything that's important to life at the age that it's appropriate to talk about those things. Every kind of situation. Even fun things. You think that talking about something fun, like going to the lake for the afternoon, would just be an exciting, special experience? What do you think? It should be an exciting experience. It should be. I mean, when at home, we've got a lake that's about three miles from us, and in the summer, in an afternoon, we can talk about, oh, let's pack up the canoe, and let's take a picnic, and let's go down to the lake this afternoon, spend an, eat our lunch at the lake, and spend an hour or two canoeing around. It's a beautiful day. It's even fun things we need to communicate clearly on. Many families can take an idea that's fun. Let's go to the lake. And before they ever get there, communication is broken, feelings are hurt, there's agitation, frustration, irritation in the car on the way to the lake because of poor communication. Going to the lake is more than just creating the idea and saying, let's all go to the lake. Going to the lake is communicating. We're all agreed to go to the lake. Who's going to help mother get the picnic ready? Okay? Who's going to help father load the canoe? Who's going to be responsible to get the towels, the beach towels, the sunscreen, the paddles, or anything else we're going to haul to the lake? The life jackets. Those things won't happen automatically. It's the lack of communication that creates the agitation, the irritation, the frustration. Because if you don't communicate about the whole process, what will happen is you're going to get to the lake and, well, where's the life jackets? Well, I don't know. Well... Why didn't you get them? And then there's... Nobody told me to get them. You know what it's like, because we've all been there, right? We've, we have experienced it on the negative side, so we speak from experience. We know how those simple things can happen, even though they were meant to be fun and enjoyable and memories. So communication means we, we plan thoroughly, and we cover all the things, and everybody knows clearly the responsibility. Everybody has a cooperative spirit, and in 10 minutes, we can be heading to the lake, and the whole afternoon is nothing but pleasantness and fond memories. The other problem that, that swings to the other side is some parents do everything for their children. Okay? Everything. And what ends up happening, it doesn't look so bad at five and six years old. But if Mother and father are doing everything, and I tell you, we've watched children grow up with our children, and you watch what they're like. It's embarrassing when they get older and they can't do anything for themselves because mom and dad did everything for them. They need to learn how to communicate about every area of life. The reason many families are in distress today is because the couples don't know how to communicate. They didn't learn how to communicate about basic things because there either wasn't good communication or mom and dad or one of the parents did everything for them and now here they are and they don't know how to do it and they don't know how to communicate about it. So we don't want to be in either of those ditches. Does that mean that we even communicate about death? 
You know, I remember going through my mother's death. She died of cancer in 1998. It was a very difficult experience to watch my mother, the children's grandmother, die of cancer. It was a very heart-wrenching experience. But it was nice to be able to spend the time with her before she died, to, to be there and to be able to communicate everything that you needed to communicate. But you know, different children at different ages don't need to know all the same information. Now, it's very normal for us to sit down with our young people as they were all at home, sit down with them and have a family council and talk about anything and everything. When it came to the dying process of my mother, we did not just sit down and talk about this whole process on the same level with each child. What we evaluated was their need to know. Do you understand what I mean by that? The need to know. A 10-year-old does not need to know what a 15-year-old needs to know. They don't have the, the burden to know. They don't carry that in their life. Therefore, you don't have to sit down with the 10-year-old in the same conversation with the 15-year-old and tell them the same information. What you do and what we did is we took each of our children and explored their need to know. Allison, as the oldest, had more of a cognitive process going on, needed more answers than did Josiah at his age. Emily was somewhere in between. Explore the need to know. Don't ignore it. If you ignore it, it won't go away. And you'll find out somewhere down the road that there are feelings and emotions that come up that were never dealt with because there wasn't the right kind of communication. But they all need to know what it means when someone is dying and that the end result of that, at least in this world, the temporal loss, because we have known families that haven't really told their children that father isn't going to make it. And, you know, until the day or two before he died, and it was very traumatic. So they do need to understand, unless God intervenes, what the ultimate outcome will be. So they have time in their own personality to share whatever's on their heart Amen. and to spend the time. But in our home, we saw the difference between the desire Allison had to spend with her grandmother than Josiah at a much younger age to spend with his grandmother. Because there was a different bond there. There was a different level of maturity there. There was a different level, there was a diff level of understanding there. So it doesn't mean that we keep the truth from our children. They need to know, but to whatever degree that truth is understood has to be according to what they're capable of right. comprehending. And, and they, they needed to be able to experience faith, you know, except you become as a little child. Our children were praying in faith. You know what they were praying for? That grandma would be healed. Is that okay to pray for that? Amen. Absolutely. But we needed as parents to go to each of those children. And we needed to explain to them where they could understand how that prayer of faith needed to be according to God's will. They needed to understand that at each age. As a result, when they came through that dying process, they were not left with unanswered questions about, well, I thought I had faith. I thought if I prayed, they didn't have any of those questions. That was all worked out through the process. We need to communicate. So evaluation is a very important part of parenting with a purpose. 
We talked uh, about communication and companionship. But it's not enough just to recognize that need. It's not enough to spend time communicating and being our young people's companion. We must evaluate the outcome. Evaluation, reflection time, I call it, is very important in helping us to guide and and to know what to give more of or to give less of, how to talk about things in a different way or other activities we need to do in companionship through the evaluation process. And we evaluate all day long. You know, God uses our background sometimes to help us understand the importance of spiritual truths. And I can remember my nursing background in intensive care. Every moment I was there, I was constantly evaluating vital signs, the the statistics, the lab report, everything that came in for that patient's life, life and death situations. So also with our children. All day long, we continue to evaluate. We can tell it by an expression, by an attitude, by a demeanor, by their by their joy, by their hesitancy, by how well the school lesson's done, or by how sloppy the the housework is done, or whatever it may be. We can evaluate it in their play. God wants us to evaluate our parenting on a continual basis and take time every day to evaluate through the day and also take time to to evaluate quietly between you and the Lord in that reflection time. Early morning for me was my time. By the end of the day, I was exhausted. I wanted to sleep. But the Lord would often wake me up early. And I would reflect and pray. And I would remember things the day before that didn't go so good. And the Lord helped me to see before they started to go awry what was building up to the part at which things fell apart. You know what I mean? And then we try at that point to identify those little turning points through that reflection time. And then today, we have a new day, and it can be a better day. I'd like to close with this encouraging verse from Psalm 27, verse 4. This really talks about the ultimate parenting purpose. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Is that worth seeking after? Because if that is our desire as parents, then it will be our desire also to parent with a purpose that our family can be dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Shall we kneel as we close in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for the parenting process that you are involved in with us. You are our heavenly father. Sometimes we're stubborn children. Sometimes we kick against the pricks. Sometimes we ignore you. Sometimes we don't want your companionship. Sometimes we don't want to hear and communicate with you through your word and through prayer. But Lord, you... You never cast us off, and you're always there for us. And Lord, we want to be there for our children. We want to parent them with the same purposes that you have for us. You wish above all things that we would prosper and be in health, and that's what we desire for our children. 
We desire that they would be with you, that they would receive the crown of life, that they would turn away from the worldly things that press about them. Lord, help us to do our part to cooperate with you and parent with a purpose through Jesus Christ. Amen.